0: isn't it? It's hard and it's getting harder all the time. I mean sure it's good to be alive, Uh, don't hear me wrong. Uh, These are safe and prosperous times that we live in and possibly the best ever but still life is hard somehow and it seems to get harder every year as another problem and another problem happens upon us and another pain occurs, another relationship goes sour and another plan fails and And we never seem to quite manage to live up to our expectations for ourselves, now do we? Sometimes it feels like a smarter decision to just stay in bed. I think if I was the writer of the Lamentations, I think that might have been where I wrote it from. It's heavy. And they're facing up to the truth that life is hard. You ever feel like that? Yeah, I know I do. What happened to those optimistic, hopeful people we used to be? Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed like the kids were down here earlier on. Uh, what happened to those people who just got on with things no matter what was going wrong, no matter how hard it was? Now, maybe, maybe they were few and far between. Maybe they never really existed. But whether they did or not, it seems that uh, this side of the year 2000, we have become a nation of Australians who are easily blown over. Easily knocked down, easily deceived and led astray, easily cast adrift on the many currents of modern society and modern thought. And for the Christian, in the midst of this cultural malaise that we're in, it's tricky to stay upright, isn't it? It's tricky not just to be dragged down along with it. It's hard to be hopeful and purposeful. It's hard to stay on course whenever everyone around us is so easily blown over and encourages us to be blown over with them. What do we want to hear when someone's asked you the question, how are you going today? Well, you know, it's all about which complaint can we bring out first? Who's gonna, well, let's one-up each other on on our complaints, shall we? We're all blown over by the challenges of life and we're led astray by the latest trends and ideas that consume our nation. It, It seems that we're missing something, that we're missing the ballast that we need to keep us upright, the ballast that will keep us on track when we're buffeted by false ideas and false people and problems that knock us off our feet. But hold on a moment. There's a a problem here, isn't there? What on earth is ballast? Does anyone here know what ballast is? Do do we have any sailors amongst us? Maybe one, maybe none. You've been on a boat before? A few people on a boat? Ballast? Ballast? What's ballast? Ballast is the weight that keeps the ship ballast. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, it, it, it's the centre of gravity. It works for all kinds of things, but it, that's a great way to put it. In a boat, it's the ballast, it's the weight down low that keeps the boat balanced. It keeps it upright, it keeps it straight, it keeps it staying over. Do you remember those old clipper ships of the, of the 1800s? None of us were alive then, but do you remember those big sailing ships? I'm presuming none of us were alive then. They were huge vessels with, even, with an enormous masts and these huge sails, and how did they not just tip over? How did they not just you know, fall over with the merest puff of wind? Well, they didn't. And for one reason, and for one reason only, at the very base of the ship, deep down low, the keel was packed solid with a collection of enormous, huge, heavy river stones that keep the whole thing balanced. Now, in modern times, the old river stones are being replaced by enormous lead weights and those kinds of things. But the principle of ballast is still the same. Without heavy ballast, the largest ships would just fall over and be blown over. And just like ships need ballast, God knows that you and I also need heavy theological ballast in our Christian lives, deep down in us, to keep us upright. And just as the larger the ballast weight, the larger the ship could be, so also the greater the theological ballast in us, the stronger the Christian will be the more certain the theological ballast, the less likely we will be blown over, the less likely we are to be led astray. And God, knowing this, moved John by his spirit to inspire a letter to be written, a letter that would supply ballast to every Christian who took the time to read it. And that's what you guys are doing over the next few weeks. So today we're looking at this, this first chapter. Let's look this chapter together, and in this first chapter, uh, you can see on your outline it says there, we're going to look at the messenger, uh, the message, and the makeover, uh, which will each introduce us to Christ, who is the balance of our faith, and you'll be pleased to know we've already done the first point, too easily blown over. So as we come to God's Word, how about you open, make sure God's Word is open, don't trust me, I'm a preacher, therefore you never trust the preacher, make sure the preacher follows God's Word. So get your Bibles open, page 1207, if I don't say what matches there, then don't listen, because I'm giving you false ballast. So let's not do that. Let's pray, ask God to help me and you as you listen and let's get God's word open. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are our God, that you know what we need. Uh, We think we know what we need, but we so often get that wrong. And that's why we've humbled ourselves and come to church this morning, that you would instruct us. And Father, would you use me now to proclaim your word clearly, faithfully and helpfully. And Father, would you lay deep ballast into our lives, the ballast of Christ so that we might face this day with new hope and stay upright and we pray it in Jesus name amen well first off we have here the messenger in these verse four verses and it's these first four verses who introduce us to John who announces his desire here for fellowship with his readers a fellowship that will make his joy complete now, we know it's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John because of what the letter contains in its content and the way that he wrote it. And you could, if, you, if you're a Greek scholar, you can go and have a look and you'll notice these things. And just like in his Gospel, John, once again, doesn't name himself. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, it's John, it's me who's writing and the disciple Jesus loved. No, it's not. He doesn't. He, he seems more interested in other things. And he uses the plural we there. This is not the royal we that the Queen uses when she's referring to herself. No, this time he's referring to the whole company of apostles who were the first hand flesh and blood witnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus. It was they alongside John, verse 1, who saw with their eyes and heard with their ears and touched with their hands this man, Jesus, who is the word of life, who the word who embodies eternal life. The Son of God, he says here, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this tells us that John's testimony, this message he's written to us, is not one that he dreamed up himself one day. Nor is it a message of philosophical wisdom or secret knowledge that only some people can gain access to. No, no, no. In company with the other apostles, he is proclaiming to us what they actually saw and heard as first-hand witnesses So that we might join with them in believing those things that they saw and heard. For if we believe in the same things that they do, then we can have fellowship with them. And not just with them, he says here, but with God himself. And therefore, it's also true if we don't believe them, then we can't enjoy fellowship with them. Why not? It's because agreeing on common beliefs is how fellowship works, that's how it functions. Uh, For example, just before Christmas, one of my sons, my eldest son, injured his back jumping into a water hole out near Yonge. At the time, I was on a plane flying from Perth to Sydney. As I land, I've got all these messages on my phone, what's going on? Now, I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. I didn't touch it. I wasn't present. I was told the news by his friends who were there. And I had a choice at that moment. I was standing on this plane listening to their message. I could choose to believe their testimony and fellowship with them in acting on that information or... I could disbelieve their testimony. I could ignore their proclamation. I could doubt their message and not fellowship with them in how I spoke and what I did next. My fellowship with them pivoted on whether I believed them. And it's obvious, isn't it? Fellowship is established and built up where there is common belief and fellowship is broken down where there is disbelief and reaction. Now, the same happens in year 13 every year as new students join. We've got 90 students this year. And it's the common belief that we have in the Lord Jesus that is the starting point of the relationship. And all kinds of community then builds upon that over the course of the year. But it only starts because there's a common belief. And it's there that our fellowship begins. And it's true also here at your church. You believe the same things about Jesus. And if you're new today and you've never seen these people before... I'm telling you, they all believe the same things about Jesus, which is why they come here every single week. And that's why they have fellowship with each other that is rich and delightful and they trust each other with their kids. I mean, where do they go? Who knows? I don't know where they are right now, but clearly they trust each other. And they've got so much fellowship. That you can, that this church can organise itself into a functioning community with financial commitments and leadership structures and resources and buildings and responsibilities and reports. And you've got an annual general meeting that's going to express all these things. And, but you can do all this only because of your common belief. And because of that, you therefore not just have organisation, you also have joy, real joy. And only because of that common belief in Jesus. Take that away and everything else will crumble. Trust will fall and so will everything else that you do. Well, so too with John and the apostles. Their joy will be complete if fellowship with John's dear children here can be built up and maintained by their common belief in Jesus. It starts there and it filters all the way through. And better still, he says here that if we have fellowship with John and the apostles through what we believe in common with them, then actually we have fellowship with God himself. Did you notice that? Verse 4? Verse 3, sorry. Four. Verse 3 tells us the apostles' fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, that's some kind of incentive, isn't it? That's the kind of incentive we need to, lead, we need to listen to a message if we're going to get fellowship with god because we listen and believe what he says here well tell me more tell me more john and so he goes on and what is his message verse five well what is this thing that we need to believe and act on so we can have fellowship with the apostles and therefore fellowship with god the father and his son jesus christ now we could mount a good argument right here uh, that The message he proclaims is now everything that he writes, everything that he says right through to the end of chapter 5. And that would be at least generally accurate. But to be properly, truly accurate, the message is there only in the second half of verse 5. Just that little bit. And it's then the implications of that message which are then played out all the way through to the end of the book. So again, I ask, what is this all-important message? Well, there it is at the end of verse 5, following the colon. Again, make sure I don't deceive you. Let's read it out together. Would you read it out with me together? What does it say after the colon there? God is... Let's try again. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That's what it says. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. Now, it's simple. It's short. This this is is it. This is his message. This is all it is. It's succinct. But of all the brief statements in the Bible about the essential nature of God, few of them are more helpful or more comprehensive than this: "God is light. In Him, there's no darkness at all." Now, saying this, uh, saying that God is light, is to compare Him to uh, light as we know it. Let me just uh, put on my head torch here. I'll see if I can blind first. No, I'll try not to blind anyone. Actually, I'll put it up there. There we go. Oh, now I can see my words. There we go. Great. Well, that's bright, isn't it? Okay, let's stop that. Uh, I've just given myself a blind spot. (laughs) Okay, now, light's like that, isn't it? You're not deceived by light. It just shines. It just does its shining thing. And just as as light is self-evident, so is God. Uh, Just as light is pure and majestic and shines out to reveal the true condition of other things, well, friends, so does God. And light is only light if it doesn't possess any darkness. There's no such thing as a dark light. It's a mutually exclusive phrase. There might be bright light and there might be dim light, but there's no such thing as dark light. Well, so also with God. But when we're talking about God, we're talking about holiness and versus sin. Moral perfection versus impurity. Search the scriptures from beginning to end and you'll find multitude of references to God as holy and light judging sin and exposing the darkness of humanity. And this message is absolutely revolutionary in its effect upon us whom he has made, isn't it? This brief statement is worth writing a whole letter about, which John does. For if God is light... If in him there is no darkness at all, this puts every single human being on the face of the planet throughout all time in serious trouble. It puts us in an extremely dangerous position. Way more dangerous than we realise. But as dangerous as the writer to the Lamentations discovered. And gave testimony to in that first chapter. You want to fall into the hands of a holy God? Well, that's what it looks like if you're still alive to talk about it. Lamentations lays that out for us. We we like to think that global warming is a big issue, and it is. It affects everything. But try messing with the God who made the world. We like to think that the threat from false teachers is bad, people leading us astray, and it is bad. But try denying the truth. Spoken by God. We like to think that cancer or depression or abuse or oppression by enemies is a threat to our well-being. And certainly it is. There's no denying that it is. But try falling into the hands of a holy God. Friends, we're better to be swallowed up by the sun than to approach God's light with our darkness and expect to have fellowship with him. Expect for it to all be okay. Brothers and sisters, what are we to do how are we to survive? If this is truly what God is like, if John who's met him, this is actually what he's like, then how can we survive? How can you and I, with our dark hearts and our darker minds and our dark tongues and our dark intentions, come before a God who is light? How could we ever survive? It's an impossible problem for us to solve, isn't it? It's like NASA trying to land a spaceship on the sun. You notice they're not looking that direction. They keep looking the other direction. Let's go further away from the sun. Let's go to Mars next. They're not going that way because, well, that would be daft. It just can't be done. So what are we to do? How are we deal with the fact that God is light and we are dark? Well we come up with solutions, don't we? In John's day, the church made the mistake of listening to false teachers who were present in the day. There's Gnostics and others, you can look into it. There's all kinds of people who come up with all kinds of ideas about how you can deal with a holy God and and wear dark. And the key way is to inflate our view of ourselves and deflate God's holiness until there's a happy compromise in the middle. And though it was all lies, it certainly made people a whole lot more comfortable with their sin. And people today tell us the same story, don't they? They flatter us and puff up our self-esteem saying, you're not really as bad as you think you are. And by the way, don't, it's not only that. God is actually not as holy as you think he is or as that you fear he is. And they say, look, of course you're good enough for him. You're good enough for me, aren't you? And, and look, I don't love as much as God loves. And God's so full of love that, of course, he's going to love you. And so, therefore, you've got nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I accept you, so of course God will. And they inflate us and they deflate God. And while we know in our hearts it's not true, we look in the mirror, we know we're not that good Still, it's a comforting lie, isn't it? It's a very comforting lie that many people grasp hold of, including us Christians. Why do we do it? Why do they do it in John's day as they did? Why why do we do this? Why do we listen to lies instead of truth? Why do we listen to worldly experts rather than apostles like John, who were actual eyewitnesses and reliable messengers? Why? Well, if we, if we actually pause to listen to John, it just won't be comfortable. It won't be comfortable at all. And you guys are choosing to sit on these lovely, comfortable chairs in this lovely, comfortable place rather than the old building. Why are you doing that? It's just way more comfortable, isn't it? And we just choose comfort. I mean, why do you choose your bed each night rather than the floor? Well, dumb question, because it's comfortable. We like comfort. It won't be comfortable to do otherwise and therefore if we listen to John it won't be the lovely comfortable massage chair we would like it to be instead it will be an all-of-life makeover and no one wants to change that much now do we but if we do listen to John It will be a makeover that is very uncomfortable. Yes, it will. But it will be a makeover that will defend us against the false claims, the false teachers, which are the same false claims that we tell ourselves every day when we get up. It will be a makeover that supplies the ballast down deep that we need to survive the storms of life rather than being blown over so easily as we are. Do you want a makeover like that? Do you, do you have people in your life that you love that need a makeover like that? Well, if so, there's only one place we can go, and it's, it's to God's Word, because that's where the makeover happens. And that's where we're going to go right now. Are you willing to have a look at it? Maybe, maybe just come f- on the journey with me, and let's kick the tires of this makeover and have a look at it. Right, keep your eyes and your minds open, because that's what we're going to do now as we look at these next few verses. Let's check out this makeover and see what it's made up of. Now, the way this works, the way this makeover works, is John brings to light three false claims people like to meet. He drags each of these claims out of our hearts and into the light of God, who then exposes them with the truth. And then he shows us with each of them a better way than the way we have been going. Look at your Bibles there, you'll see three statements that all begin with the words, if we claim, if we claim. Just look for the word, if you'll find it. Look and you'll see them there in verses 6, 8 and 10. And one at a time, each of these if we claim statements is condemned by John as false and then the truth about Jesus is used to replace that false claim. So if this, but that. The lies are pulled out and then the theological truths about Jesus are placed one ballast rock after another into our keels so that we can become strong and true. That's how this works. And the first is there in verses 6 and 7. It says, If we claim we have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And we recognize that first one, don't we? Verse 6. It's hypocrisy, isn't it? If we claim one thing and do another, then we are liars and we are hypocrites and no one likes such a person, least of all God. John reminds us later on when he writes Revelation, Revelation 21, that all liars will be thrown by God into the lake of burning sulphur. Now, that's not the destination any of us are really thinking of the way we want to go to, is it? So don't be a liar. Don't live a lie. Rather, walk in the light as he is in the light walk in fellowship with others who are Christians, and you will purify yourselves from all sin. Is that what it says? That you will purify yourself from all sin by your actions? I'm checking to see if anyone's got a Bible open. Is that what it says? It doesn't, does it? That's what we want it to say. And if this was a self-motivation talk, that's exactly what it would say. If this was a... uh, No, I... A non-Christian psychologist, that's exactly what it would say. You can fix this yourself. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It's the blood of Jesus that avails for you and for me. It's the blood of Jesus we sang about in And Can It Be that brings light into that dark place and sets the prisoner free. I walk not in the light of my own holiness, but I need to walk in the light of the cross for my total forgiveness is bought at the price of his blood. So John's saying he claim Jesus' blood for yourself and then walk in the light. Because if you have his blood and walk in darkness, then you're self-condemned. But walk in the light of the cross and you're purified again and again and again by his blood, which availeth much for all those who trust him. Now that's the kind of ballast we need, isn't it? Pull us out of the way and stick Christ in instead. But there's more. The second's there, verses 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, the problem claimed there in verse 8, it's a denial of sin in our nature. It's to say that, you know, look, you might be sinful, but I can tell you I'm not i don't have sin in my nature and yet denial of the truth no matter how loud we like to shout about it still does not actually change the truth does it and god's light cuts cuts right through it and we see that in the garden of eden don't we with adam and eve there that was adam's attempt in the garden of eden to say it wasn't his fault it was the fault of the woman that you put here with me god it's not my fault god it's your fault and it's her fault You put her here with me. You put that blasted tree here. What did you do that for? That was stupid. And then you caused me to stumble and she pushed me. I'm completely innocent of my crime. I did nothing. It's your fault. It's her fault. And God shines the bright light of the truth on that. Rubbish. That's rubbish. He says it much more gently, doesn't it? Rubbish, Adam. Your real problem is not outside of you. Your real problem is that the truth is not in you. And if you have no truth in you, then you're devoid of light, you're full of darkness, and you have no place with God, and he's cast out. Instead of this, friends, let's be truthful about our sin, as we are advised there in verse 9. Don't deny your sin or cover over your sin. Don't mitigate it or distribute it around to others. Let's own up. Let's fess up to its existence in our hearts. Acknowledge sin in your nature, but don't stop there and wallow in it. No, no, no. Now place yourself in God's merciful hands because it is he who is faithful and just. It's he who loves the light of the truth and therefore what he see here, he promises to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If only we will come to him and actually do that confession. If only we'll be truthful about it. And what's more we say, isn't that the kind of ballast that we truly need in our lives? But there's still one more. One more step in this makeover, and it's the most significant one John wants us to notice. It begins there in verse 10. But there's a pause in the middle of it, so this one's a little bit different. It begins verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Now the problem claim here in verse 10 it is deadly serious. This is the most serious of all three. This one's not a denial of sin in our nature, but it's a denial that God is truthful. And as a result, it's the most serious of these three claims so far. The claim in verse 6 was a deliberate lie. The claim in verse 8 was a delusion. The claim here in verse 10 is infinitely more serious than that, for it is to redefine the truth. This is a redefinition of truth that turns God into a liar and us into the truth speaker. This is an attack on God and his character. It's to say that he lies about our sins, that he makes them up for some perverse reason. And that we're not really the perpetrators of any wrong. And in fact, we can just redefine things until we're good and he's evil. Friends, this is deadly serious. Redefine things so that you're good and God is evil. And you are maligning the character of God. You're maligning the testimony and person of God. Oh, beware. Beware his wrath. You saw it in Lamentations. Keep reading. You'll see more of it. Beware. However, once again, there is makeover mercy here and tender hope for all of us who want to listen. Listen. And it's held out to us here by John who knows us and loves us. He writes there, uh, John who knows us and knows Jesus, he writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if you have, if anybody does sin like this, oh, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And not only does Jesus speak in our defence, he supplies his own body. As our defence, verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, if you want to distance yourself from sin and darkness by some method of denial or delusion or redefinition, well, you're just going to come under the wrath of God faster and harder than you ever planned. You'll retain your sins. You'll face his wrath for the judgment you deserve. But if we trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus in his death on the cross for those same sins, then along with everyone in the world who trusts Jesus, we are fully and totally forgiven. And that's the greatest ballast rock of all. Forgiveness through the atoning death of Jesus is the greatest and heaviest and most beautiful of all ballast that any human can possess, friends. This is the pearl of great price, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, are you easily blown over in this world of strife? Are you easily led astray, either by yourself or by others? Do you lack the resilience? Do you struggle to stay upright in the storms of life? Have you been listening to yourself so much and listening to others so much that you've been led astray from God? Well, then maybe this week it's time to spend more time in 1 John. Maybe it's time for a full Christian makeover. Maybe it's time to allow the light of God to fall on you and reveal the darkness that you've actually been treasuring and holding on to, like Gollum in the bottom of that cave, my precious. Bring it into the light. Maybe it's time to dig deep into your heart and expose to the light all those false claims and lies you've been relying on. And maybe it's time to replace them all with the ballast of Christ. Christ, who is the light, Christ, who is the truth, Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the only sacrifice who can give us life. And that's what I'd urge you to do today. That's what I'd urge you to keep urging each other to do constantly in your walk with Christ. Fill your life with the ballast of Christ. For if you do and you keep encouraging one another that way in this church, then you will have found yourself a ballast that will hold you up in any and every storm to the glory and praise of God. Amen.